Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and today we're taking you back to 18th century Florence to explore one of the most famous museums in the world, La Specola, or the Imperial Royal Museum of Physics and Natural History. When you walked in originally, you saw examples of sea life. So there's this idea of going from the sea to the heavens, this idea of a progressive walk through the chain of being. Our guide is Rebecca Messbarger, a professor of Italian and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. She has studied this museum for some time and in particular, its infamous culminating exhibit. You saw shell life and fish, and then you moved into mammalia. You had animals, stuffed animals, that came from all over the world. And these are still there. They're not in terrific shape. (laughs) And some of that is actually really educational to see what taxidermy was like in the 1700s. And then you moved further into the museum, they added an entomological exhibit, so you had insects from all over the world, a gigantic ornithological exhibit, so now you're moving up to the birds, thousands and thousands of birds. You finally arrived at sort of the culminating point, and that was this very large collection of anatomical wax bodies. So you go through and you see the natural order of the world, and then you enter this space and you see the natural order of your own human body. So the exhibit culminated in wax anatomical human bodies, which are pretty disturbing, even by today's standards. Before we get too far into the exhibit, we want to pose a bigger question. Can a place represent an idea? Can one exhibit help change the tide of a culture? To answer this, let's introduce the museum's founder and guiding visionary, Peter Leopold, who, it's also interesting to note, was Marie Antoinette's older brother. Okay, so he arrives, 19 years old, in 1765. He was a 19-year-old Habsburg Archduke sent from Vienna who had been steeped in Enlightenment philosophy. And he arrives in Florence, and Florence is going to be his project to create the perfect Enlightenment state. Very early in his tenure as the Grand Duke of Tuscany, He's approached by a natural philosopher named Felice Fontana. And I have to say, this was a misnomer because he was anything but a fountain of happiness. He was a very grim, angry guy, but he was brilliant. And he was devoted to natural philosophy. He was a scientist. He had been schooled in Bologna. Through a series of events, he decides that he wants to mount this project. He brings the idea to this young Grand Duke, and the Grand Duke was an amateur chemist. And he and Felice Fontana conduct chemistry experiments in Palazzo Pitti, where 
the Habsburg family lives. So Felice Fontana brings this idea to him and immediately it's embraced. And from about 1771, there is the accumulation of these collections of natural artifacts and physics machines. And they embark on this huge project to make wax anatomies from human cadavers. And they go about creating these wax models pretty much how you imagine. They have a kind of gopher, the Bikino, who goes from the Torrigiani Palace, and he goes to the hospital of Santa Maria Nuova, which is on the opposite side of the Arno. And there in the cemetery and in the anatomy laboratories, he carts home whole and more often parts of cadavers for dissection by barber surgeons and for casting in wax by academy-trained artists. And Felice Fontana himself was elbow deep in these cadavers working to create perfect models of the anatomized body. And I have to interject here how well these artists captured the body. The wax figures look really, well, real. We have some pictures up on our website for those who are interested in checking them out. It's a very eclectic aesthetic, and it's a very eclectic scientific view of the body. For example, they have your traditional anatomical écorché, which is basically a skinned, life-size human body for the purposes of art. Many artists studied human anatomy in order to make more perfect, more accurate renderings of the nude, male and female. So these are things that come straight out of Renaissance anatomical atlases. Then you have things that are less conventional. Life-size figures reclining, recumbent, demonstrating different systems. You have lymphatic system, cardiovascular system, you have the digestive system entirely exposed on the outside. These are male and female figures in glass boxes. They're laying on silk beds. They're animate. One male figure is raised up on an elbow as the rest of him is reclined. Usually the expressions are ones of tremendous pathos or a kind of trance, a kind of liminal position between life and death. And then the other thing is you have lots of parts of bodies. You have anatomical parts taken out of their natural site in order to see their structure and function. These figures were being constantly revised and expanded upon as new anatomical treaties were published. For example, William Hunter's obstetrical atlas was published in the midst of the museum's creation. And so Felice Fontana dedicated a whole section of the display to show off these new medical advances. However, among all the figures in the exhibit, there was one particularly interesting model, the crown jewel of the display, if you will. The most famous life-size figure is, of course, the decomposable or demountable Venus. This was a full-size female figure, nude, laying on a silk bed with long hair, open glass eyes, ruby lips, 
and in a very kind of traditionally Venus-like pose from high art. But what you see is that her breastplate comes off and you see the adipose, the layer of fat underneath and the mammary glands. One breast comes out. Then this layer is removed and you see the superficial organs and you go deeper and deeper. Her heart can come out and can be held in hand. And of course, sort of the culminating most hidden figure is the tiny fetus in the uterus in the deepest part of the lower abdomen. She was a sensation and attracted lots of local tourists and lots of grand tourists. Visiting the Specula was much like visiting a science museum in any major city today. It was visited by tens of thousands of families and children each year, which is exactly what the Archduke wanted. As an Enlightenment thinker, Peter Leopold wanted to teach his subjects about the workings of their own bodies, and the museum, and its famous wax bodies, helped to usher in a new Enlightenment era. I mean, one way to think about what I consider a radical reform, a new regime of the human body with the arrival of this young Habsburg prince is to think about the policies and the representation of the body under the Medici princes. Even after the Medici dynasty petered out in 1737, their presence could still be felt throughout much of Tuscany. And their legacy on Western art as we know it cannot be denied. However, the Medici view and treatment of the human body and the lower and working classes contrasted sharply with Peter Leopold's Enlightenment theories. Professor Messbarger illustrates this point with the story of a lowly criminal under the Medici rule. In 1759, Domenico Piccioli, a working-class Tuscan, was finally condemned to death for petty theft. And he represents the kind of justice, the kind of treatment of the human body under the Medici regime. He's marched through the streets of Florence. It's pouring down rain. He's suffered agonizing torture. He's pretty much shattered physically, and he's hung by the neck in this very public execution. He had so many relatives that they had to put a squadron of soldiers around the gallows. He represents the last criminal executed. When Peter Leopold arrives in 1765, he is influenced by a Milanese Enlightenment thinker, Cesare Beccaria. He wrote a book called On Crimes and Punishment, who talked about the fact that torture and capital punishment must not be part of the enlightened state, that this is a rupture of the social contract that a government makes with its citizens. And Peter Leopold is thoroughly convinced by this argument. Under him, no executions take place. And in fact, he sets fire to the instruments of torture that were used against Domenico Piccioli inside the Bargello and he burns to the ground the scaffold where Domenico Piccioli was hung by the neck. 
And this really is a moment of dramatic shift. He is the first and only sovereign in all of Europe to outlaw torture and capital punishment. So that signals a new regime of the body. This new regime of the body doesn't stop with the museum or with the end of capital punishment. Peter Leopold also revamped the Institutes of Public Health. He expanded the hospitals to accommodate obstetrics, and he had the streets lit so that people could find their way at night. However, the Archduke also explicitly confronts the Medici legacy in other ways. Remember the crown jewel of the Wax Anatomy Museum? The decomposable Venus? He's in serious competition, it's very explicit, with the Medici family. And the Medici family's great mark on Western culture is housed in the Uffizi, all the great works of art. The Medici family's symbolic figure was the Venus. I mean, we think about the Venus de' Medici, this Hellenistic statue. We think about Botticelli's Venus. We think about the birth of Venus. We think about spring. And we think about Titian's Venus, which is inside the Uffizi, right? So what does Peter Leopold do? He has an anatomical Venus. So you can be aesthetically improved in the presence of these artistic Venuses from the Renaissance and the classical age, or you can truly be transformed in terms of your self-knowledge, the knowledge of your own interior through your experience of what is beautiful and useful. Professor Messbarger has begun to investigate the relationship between these two great museums, the Medici's Uffizi Art Gallery and Peter Leopold's La Specola. The two lay just across the Arno River from each other in Florence, and though they are set up to be rivals, the relationship is much more complicated. Remember, the modelers who were making the wax bodies were academy-trained artists. I also wanted to find out much more about the daily relationship between the Uffizi and the specula, because there were, you know, there was this rivalry, but there was also a tremendous amount of integration. So one of the things that I discovered is that the lead modeler, both modelers, were working inside the Uffizi and the specula. The influence of these works of art on the aesthetic and the representation of the body I believe needs a lot more explanation and exploration. Something that has been a little bit misunderstood, historians have often called the Venus, the decomposable Venus, a Venus de' Medici. I think it's a much more complicated relationship to the Medici Venuses, but actually there were wax casts made of the statue, the Venus de' Medici, and of the Apollo these two most important statues, considered the perfect image of male and female beauty, okay? These two statues were mounted in the entrance of the Wax Anatomy Museum. So there's an explicit relationship with the Uffizi. I wanted to find out what happened to these because they've gone missing. Nobody makes any mention of them. So, you know, I was wandering around trying to find out where did they go?
there's still a lot to be learned about the wax anatomical bodies inside La Specula, but their impact and the effect they had at this critical time when a society changed from a renaissance and classical culture to one that focused on reason and enlightenment for people of all gender and classes is pretty clear. Many thanks again to Rebecca Messbarger for taking the time to meet with us. Be sure to check out the pictures we have of the anatomical wax bodies at the Specula on our website. You can find this and all of our podcasts at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. Ciao!